PTJ podcasts are made possible by the American Physical Therapy Association. This podcast is sponsored by Eclipse. Eclipse has helped physical therapists streamline their practices since 1985. Eclipse is a comprehensive all-in-one system that handles your billing, scheduling, and clinical documentation. Find out more at www.ineedeclipse.com or call 1-800-966-1462. And I think we started to realize more and more in the last 20 years, maybe, that a lot of that variability is actually functional. I see a big need for variability in adult rehabilitation. Allowing the error to occur informs the mover. So it's not the successful sitting or how many seconds you can actually stay there. It's that you're exploring a new space. Welcome to this PTJ discussion podcast, Variability in Pediatric Physical Therapist Practice. The December 2010 issue of PTJ contains the Pediatrics Special Issue. Three of the authors from the special issue analyze the concept of variability and its role in physical therapist practice. Joining PTJ editorial board member Dr. James Cole Galloway are Dr. Regina Harborn, Professor Beatrix Verreiken, and Dr. Linda Fetters. Here is our moderator, Cole Galloway. Well, we have three senior scientists with data to discuss their articles within the pediatric special issue, and we'll get right to it. First, I have Reggie Harborn. Dr. Harborn is Associate Professor in Physical Therapy at the Monroe Meyer Institute at the University of Nebraska Medical Center in Omaha. Hi, Reggie. Can you tell us the title of your article and just a bit about it briefly? Yes. The title is A Comparison of Interventions for Children with Cerebral Palsy to Improve Sitting Postural Control, a Clinical Trial. I did this paper with my colleagues here at University of Nebraska Medical Center and University of Nebraska at Omaha. We looked at two interventions, a home program and a perceptual motor program for children developing the ability to sit. So we really just focused on that one motor task, and this is the report of our study. Excellent. Also joining us is Beatrix Verreiken. Dr. Verreiken is a professor in the Human Movement Sciences Program in the Norwegian University of Science and Technology. Hi, Beatrix. Hello, Cole. Can you tell us the title of your perspective article and a bit about it? Yes, the title of the paper I wrote is The Complexity of Childhood Development, Variability and Perspective. And in this paper, I argue that variability is part and parcel of every move we make. Sometimes it reflects noise and inconsistency that interferes with performance. But other times it reflects the exact opposite, flexibility and a variety of available solutions to accomplish a task. In my paper, I focus on different characteristics of variability. I illustrate how variability changes with learning and development, and I discuss a few views on how variability can be dealt with in clinical practice. Great. Also joining us is Linda Fetters. Dr. Fetters is a professor in the Sykes Family Chair in Pediatric Physical Therapy, Health and Development in the Division of Biokinesiology and Physical Therapy in the Department of Pediatrics in the School of Medicine at the University of Southern California. Hello, Linda. Hi, everybody. Can you tell us the title and a little bit about your perspective before we get to the full discussion? Sure. My paper is entitled The Perspective and Variability in the Development of Human Action. And what I did in this paper was really to sit and think for a bit. I tried to reflect on, as a physical therapist, how is variability useful and important to me in terms of making clinical decisions, in terms of clinical practice, when it's a problem and when it's a solution. Great. 
let me bring Beatrix into this, and I've invited the other speakers to please interrupt. We're going to try to make this as provocative as possible. Um, Beatrix, in your perspective article, you talk about the good, bad, and neutral aspects of variability. Can you talk a little bit about the interplay of variability and consistency and practice? Well, there's so many people talking about different characteristics of variability, different views on whether you should minimize it, whether you should exploit it. And I think the example that Reggie's giving is an excellent one because in development of sitting, we know that if we provide more postural control to these infants, we take away the bad part of some of this variability that gives the performance inconsistency. Infants become much more mature in their reaching movements, head control becomes better. So I think some of these variability forms that we see in early development add up to a very unstable system, a very unstable core that gives the infant a very bad departure point for doing a functional reach, for example. So I hear variability, and I grew up with Esther Thieland and know her feelings on variability, but many in the audience may think of variability as being bad or stability as being good when I think of stability and posture. Don't those go together better than variability and posture? I think the way we were brought up before Esther was that variability was a reflection of measurement error, so we needed to come up with ways to average data so we get rid of that kind of noise in the measurements. And I think we started to realize more and more in the last 20 years maybe that a lot of that variability is actually functional. Moving around in an environment that changes all the time, we need to be variable in our movements to adapt to that environment. So we started to realize more and more that situations where you see very high consistency reflect maybe rigidity of performance that we don't want to see in movement and that variability is very often necessary to stabilize the outcome. So let me me jump in here and read something from Linda's paper. This is a quote that I love. Um, Active problem solving as therapy with this inherent error as part of the therapeutic process is critical to the successful learning of functional action. And Linda's asking us to believe that error should be part of the therapeutic process. Linda, can you talk more about your feelings on those things? Yeah, and I, I sort of in reading the three papers, my sense is that we will have some agreement on that role of, of I don't know if error is the correct word, of this exploratory ability, exploratory practice in a therapeutic environment because we see this of course, in every learning of new skill, regardless of the age of the mover, of the skill acquirer, there's practice, and the practice often results in failure to accomplish the task. That failure is rich in information about the dynamics of the process of trying to achieve the goal, and it's absolutely necessary in order to understand how is it that I'm going to do this effectively, successfully, efficiently, Where are the mistakes? What doesn't get me to my task goal? I'm saying this in a rather conscious way. I don't think this is a conscious cognitive process. I think this is an exploratory process that we see during infant development. We see during any age of skill development. And I think guiding movement, not allowing errors to happen. This is really a mistake on our part that as long as success is defined and achieved in some way, in the therapeutic process, allowing the error to occur informs the mover as to, ooh, you know, that strategy didn't work. I need to now do something else. And as long as you've got a motivated mover, which of course is key, then I think that exploratory process is what skill development is all about. 
Yeah, I really like the word exploratory because I think if a child is making a lot of attempts that do not seem successful but are in the ballpark, so to speak, that's a goal. So it's not the successful sitting or how many seconds you can actually stay there. It's that you're exploring a new space that you haven't explored before. You're swaying back and forth, maybe too far sometimes, leaning over and maybe tipping over. But it's in a safe environment, and you have just discovered that, oh, when I do that, this is the real consequence. So it's learning physics almost, learning about gravity and when you lean this way, what happens, and when you put this hand out and lean on it, how that feels. So really mapping action to perceptions of what goes on with your body. I think also in adult learning, it's the adults with a new computer program or a new tool, the ones that hit all the buttons, play around with all the possibilities. Those are the ones that really learn the system, that learn a new software program, that learn a new tool. Mm-hmm. Right, and Linda brings up a nice lifespan perspective in her article, and it's just got me thinking, although this is a pediatric special issue, I see a big need for variability in adult rehabilitation possibly more than what I see in pediatrics. I mean, this idea of variability and complexity and nonlinearity, I think, has a rich history in pediatrics. And I wonder if we couldn't serve the adult rehab community better by taking this message even broader. Yeah, I think that one of the challenges has been this, I think, false notion that there are separate rules for development in the infant population versus the aging population. And why should the rules be different? We're the same species. Why are we inventing rules? And if we do invent those rules, at what point do they not apply to the older individual? And I think that was sort of a false search that we somehow saw infants and children in our pediatric practice as somehow different. We can talk about variability across the lifespan. We can talk about variability within a task. We've got a set of principles that apply across the lifespan. And that's why I think variability is really an interesting discussion point because it depends on when you're measuring it within the development of the task. It's not a static phenomenon. It it depends on where you are in the development of a skill. This is Reggie. I I also just wanted to mention, because we keep using the word variability, but I think Beatrix did a nice job in her paper talking about the structure of variability versus just the word variability. And I think we almost have to develop a new vocabulary to describe different types of variability, so not just a standard deviation. So I can describe a, a swaying back and forth of a child in sitting, anterior, posterior, that can look just like a sine wave and look like an acetoid child is just swaying a lot. So they have a lot of variability, but within that variability, it doesn't vary. There's no little adjustments, small movements that can really make the movement functional. And that we can describe in some other terms like complexity or regularity or dynamic stability or I'm not sure what, but we have some measures, these nonlinear measures that we can use And if I could jump in and just be a little bit of a devil's advocate, because I hear this when you guys speak internationally and when I've spoken on some of these issues too, the idea of this all sounds so soft and ambiguous. There's so much with the multifactorial, nonlinear, dynamic systems, complexity, variability. I can't find who's driving the developmental bus. I can't conceptually find any place to put my feet down on to build off of. 
where do you, in, in your thinking about clinical problems and human movement, where do you start thinking about putting your feet down? The pause. <laughs> I can start a lot because <laughs> um, when I was a student, there was no talk about uh, dynamic systems, complexity, chaos. Things were nicely ordered. Development went from milestone to milestone. People learned by practicing the same thing that they wanted to learn over and over. And it was a very tidy story. And it didn't feel... <laughs> well, I would say the bad old days because it the didn't ring any days. bell with me. <laughs> I thought it was just a hopeless way of characterizing something that we know is very rich and very complex. So thinking about these deterministic, linear, single-factor causes of behavioral change, if we were like that, maybe that would have been nice. But we are not like that. As human beings, we are complex systems. Acknowledging this, I think, gives me inspiration that possibly any factor we can think of can help change behavior in a therapeutic situation. So instead of having to find that one hidden factor that can turn the entire problem upside down and present a nice solution to the student, to the patient, I think this gives the therapist more options to work with, so much more room for creativity. And that's one of the things that I like best about these newer perspectives. So one of the reasons why I'm 20 years later, I'm still in movement science. It's the endless possibilities that these newer directions provide to make change happen. So you sound unapologetic about reality. <laughs> <laughs> I love complexity and reality. I wouldn't you, have it out any other way. Reggie and Linda, are you also in love with reality? Don't you want to control something? Are you okay with a soft, sandy place to stand on? Yeah, I don't think it's such a soft, sandy place, truthfully. I think our task as physical therapists or our task as researchers becomes more complex when we take the brain out of the driver's seat and we say that it's a contributor. And to me, what matters, what really matters is the successful completion of functional activities. That's why people come to physical therapy. I can't put my shirt on. You know, I can't do this independently or I have pain when I do this. And to the extent that we forget that or we don't focus on that and we focus on the range of motion of the shoulder, I think that we probably do at some point have to focus on the range of motion of the shoulder perhaps, but it's the not putting the shirt on. Well, what's keeping that from happening? Why isn't that occurring? But if we bring it back to this concept of variability, I think it's really important because as a physical therapist, I'm saying, well, this person's all over the place when they try to put their shirt on. When is variability good? When is it not good? And I think Beatrix has sort of labeled this the good, the bad, and the neutral. And I want to raise something that I think is important for therapists and something that Beatrix said in her article. And this is a, a quote, Beatrix, I'm going to put you in the spot a little bit here. You're saying that as long as the outcome is preserved and the task is accomplished, so let's say the shirt gets put on, variability in execution is either functional or harmless. As a therapist, that's an issue that I think we deal with all the time. So let's say the shirt gets put on, but I now observe that it's being put on in a very atypical way. How much do I care about that? Okay, task achieved, child can get a shirt on in the morning, everybody's happy. But I see that the extraordinarily variable pattern is going to lead to a chronic musculoskeletal issue. So now this variability concerns me. And there we have a problem of variability. How much is okay? If the task is achieved, is anything okay in terms of variability? Well, at least the child is doing 
something or the patient is doing something. And I think you can use that as a starting point for trying to mold it in a different direction. So that variability might present you as a therapist with a variety of solutions of which certain solutions you don't like because you see problems down the road. You know, if someone discovers a way to do something and it works, it's very difficult to convince them otherwise. (laughs) You know, like a child who is hemiplegic, it's really not that hard to be a one-handed person. And so Mm -hmm. trying to get them to use that inefficient side is very difficult unless you can come up with a task that's motivating a problem that requires the use of those two hands. So I think that's a challenge to the therapist. However, thinking of it in terms of variability, I think it allows the creativity of the therapist and the exploration of the individual to say, okay, yes, this works for me in this situation. And then what we need to do is up the ante a little bit. Okay, you can maybe walk that way on a flat surface down the corridor, but what if it's rocky? What if it's uneven? What if it's tilted? And then the strategy has to change. So I think that we can bring in variability within the context, within the environment, within the task, as long as it's motivating to the person to exploit different options for movement. That gets me to something I've heard Reggie and Linda talk about, which is that early skills have a link to much more than just, and I use just flippantly, just movement. That We're not talking about just movement. We're talking about cognition and spatial orientation and learning. Is that part of this maintaining of optimal variability to access and process information for new knowledge? Yeah, I think that the idea of we focus on the production of the activity and not the functional goal of the activity for the individual. That's where I think infants and children kind of bring us back to the reality of they do whatever they want to do, and that's key. We may be able to tell the adult, this is what we want you to do, but you sure can't tell an 18-month-old that. They're information seekers. That's the nature of who they are, and their movement just serves that. We've seen that with children who have the results of thalidomide, you know, back in the day, where it didn't really matter which limb they were using or if they were using a limb bud, they wanted to achieve their action. They wanted to eat or they wanted to play and paint. And all of this action, all of this stuff we talk about as physical therapists is in service of this extraordinary exploratory information-seeking process. And, yeah, that does mean we need to know a lot as physical therapists about motivation, about this thing we call cognition. Yeah, I think it's really interesting to watch as a child gains a new motor skill, how they play differently, they understand things differently. And why should learning movement be different from learning concepts or learning words or any kind of learning that contributes to learning in other areas? So if I have learned to sit and reach for something and I can drop it over the side of my high chair and then have it picked up and drop it again and look for it and find it and drop it again. And then I'm learning about object permanence and gravity and all those concepts in a basic way, but that's the way it starts. I think the motor skills feed the cognitive, but the cognitive also feeds the motor skills. It's a really mm-hmm. neat cycle that I can see when children are starting to develop a new motor skill. They're noticing different things. They're picking up new information mm-hmm. and they're utilizing it. They're incorporating it soon as they have the ability to reach for objects and manipulate them, you see the knowledge slowly seeping in into the system. 
And I think before we were much more aware how cognitive disabilities can limit motor abilities. So you're saying the other way around, Beatrix, you're saying that the motor abilities can limit the cognitive abilities? No, I, what I'm saying is that the development of new motor skills can space development in these other areas, like cognitive areas, perceptual areas. So it's first when they learn to manipulate objects that they learn about object properties, for example. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I've heard more times than I'd like to that certain areas of development are just off limits in terms of their interaction with movement. For example, I have colleagues that remind me that language is special, that language and movement don't go together in terms of mm. the development of language, yet arm movements and head movements and eye movements and lip movements are social signals. Mm. So I think that's another untapped view is that this variability has a real signaling issue to it. Well, one of the reasons I persisted in my paper in using the example of the still face paradigm right. is I think is exactly that. I think it's an exquisite example of how movement informs the social cognitive interaction between a parent and an infant. In talk about that how, what you, that would look like. Linda, talk a little bit yeah, about what that would look like in a, in a living room. The still face paradigm is something that's really hard to accomplish if you've ever tried it as a parent or as somebody who works with infants. You're asked to not respond to infant cues. So you keep your face absolutely still. And the infant will typically go berserk in terms of trying to get you to respond and to interact. They'll vary their movement. Their movements become more extreme. They'll begin to use movements that they haven't used in the past. And you can create this extraordinary variability within the typical movement repertoire and also see new movement repertoires emerge when the context of a situation has changed. And this is a social context in which movement is signaling, I want to interact with you. It sounds like the infant is exploring desperately to make you respond. Yes. If you haven't tried it, it's quite remarkable. It's difficult to maintain. I was never successful with my own infants. I can do it sometimes if it's a stranger's infant. But the bids from the infant are so salient. They're so powerful. And they work so hard to get you to respond Mm -hmm. that it's quite extraordinary. You see this variability of action playing out right in front of you. So, Cole, I don't buy this idea that movement is in any way separate from social or communicative interaction. And that really, I think, speaks to the heart of understanding and giving serious consideration to play and exploration. I often catch myself not really understanding or respecting what exploration is, what play really is, until I'm lucky enough to be able to go to an early learning center and sit on the sidelines of a playground or get in the play and realize It's very different than we think. The way kids play is just very different than the way I would go play, even on a playground with adults. When I ask the three- and four-year-olds I hang out with, what do you think about an adult playground? Somebody will bring up something like, well, they have have work ground. (laughs) I mean, work, work, work ground. But there's a huge difference in the playfulness in children and the amount of energy they invest in just coming up with endless variations of solutions. And mm-hmm. as adults, we, I think we try to think about it first and then we try to converge on a good enough solution at the first or second attempt. We don't play around. We're not allowed yeah. to play around. You try, try, you know, if Linda went into her department and started playing around, you're not even allowed to walk a slightly different way. I think that's a key to guidance. I was going to mention, you know, as a therapist, 
the heavy-handedness where you try to make it look perfect, that, that's really just not helpful. But, okay, if the child could do this on their own, they would do it. So they do need some help. But what is exactly the cue that you need to give? And it mm-hmm. needs to be the least amount possible, but mm-hmm. to the point. The therapist has to cue you to give you an idea, and then you can take it. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, I don't know about you guys, but I'm satisfied with everything. The only thing that I didn't get a chance to say was my irritation, not with you guys, but with, and it has to do with variability and complexity, is I'm really tired of hearing about how error field first second and third year humans are, that by four years old, gait has matured, mm-hmm. um, when actually the way I look at it is completely reversed. But I'm just, I'm sick and tired of my toddlers being looked at as being willy-nilly lack of control, just lack of ability to control. You're asking them to go straight ahead in a lab. Mm-hmm. And that's what you're actually tracking is the ability of first, second, third, and four year old humans to follow adult commands. Yeah, I think language acquisition might be a good example because we know how different adult language learning is from how children learn language. We learn grammar first, and we learn the rules, and we learn the words, and then we learn to construct sentences. And children, they don't start there. They just start to babble. Mm-hmm. And every now and then they babble something that we as adults around them make sense of and react to that. But I think you also almost guide and, and, and form the language out of the babbling. And it's such a different approach. It, it's more playful. It's more exploratory. And it's completely different from how we as adults learn a new language. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Beatrix, you said something a while ago about adults try to converge on the correct solution immediately, which mm-hmm. is really self-defeating because if we really believe what our papers support, which is that exploration and variability is key in terms of skill development, we need to allow ourselves to make more air which we don't as adults. We take away that playfulness or that exploration because we're supposed to be skilled. So I want to go play, actually, you know. I've been sitting still long enough. There you go. I hope that everybody listening had as much fun as we did hearing these three senior researchers and clinicians. I just want to thank the three of you guys for taking the time to help pediatric clinicians and families and children. Thanks. Thanks. It was a pleasure. It was great. It was a lot of fun. Thanks for listening. Send us your comments or suggestions about this or other PTJ podcasts via email ptj at scienceaudio.net or voicemail 626-593-7825. This has been a production of Science Audio online at www.scienceaudio.net.